my next comments uh, I want to put on the sermon tape, lest they be lost. They don't have to do specifically with the sermon today. But uh, as you know, we spent the last three times I spoke going through the calendar and uh, from several sources, both here and elsewhere, it seems as if we made it a little clearer and more understandable than it was heretofore. Uh, and someone that I have had intermittent contact with for the last 20 years, uh, from back in the CGG days, <clears throat> and occasionally since, had sent me an email this week, and uh, he had been listening. Uh, I didn't know. You, you never know who's on and who is not on, uh, but he had been listening uh, to that series. And uh, he added a thought which I thought was worth passing on. And that has to do with John 19.31. Uh, I had used that scripture, among others there in John, in the Passover paper, showing that uh, the total Passover season is indeed seven days. Ezekiel calls it a feast of seven days, and they call it a feast of seven days here in John as well. So, I had looked at these scriptures solely from the standpoint of the Passover itself, but this individual was looking at it as well from the standpoint of the new moon and made an interesting comment which could very, very well be so. Uh, John 19.31 says, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So, we know that Christ kept the Passover the evening before, right? Uh, and then he was taken around midnight and tortured through the day and crucified in the afternoon. And then before sundown of that day, the Jews wanted him taken off and buried. Because to them, as another scripture says, it was, well, it says right here, it was a preparation day. So, they looked upon the day that Christ kept the Passover on as preparation day for the Passover that night, which we would call the 15th. Now, in history, there is some uh, evidence that some of the Jews kept the beginning of the 14th and some kept the beginning of the 15th. So they themselves were apparently split on the issue. But the point that this individual made is that Christ was reckoning things differently just from a calendar standpoint, okay? If the Jews were following the first crescent, which they apparently were at that particular period in time, uh, if you go back to the beginning of the month, Passover starting on the 14th of Abib, if you went back to the beginning of the month, which was signified by the new moon, uh, and this sect of the Jews was keeping the 14th, they may have started the month a day later than Christ did. Follow me? Because he kept the Passover and was crucified on the first holy day, the 14th, as we understand now. But the Jews considered that day a preparation day for the uh, holy day that was to come. So it is very possible that he was going... I don't know how he would have calculated, neither here nor there. Very possible that he began the new moon with the 14th, a day before the Jews did. And they didn't see the crescent till later, so it would have thrown them one day later than he did it. 
So I don't know for sure whether these particular Jews were keeping a 15th Passover or whether they were keeping in their mind a 14th, but it was a day later because of having to wait to see the crescent. Just an interesting thought. Uh, that very well could be possible. Now, there are people today who still insist on keeping a 15th. Well, the Scripture clearly says, and we don't want to get into it too deeply here, the, the paper certainly showed it, but uh, it was at the beginning of the 14th. I don't think there's any question about that. Some people have questions about it, but I don't. So then, let's get into, for today, the Scripture came to mind, oh, I guess about a week ago, uh, in Isaiah, which is, I think, an important and perhaps pivotal Scripture for us to consider. We've been through it before, but it came to my mind as I was thinking about some things. And then, yesterday, as we were fasting, uh, the meaning of the particular fast of the fourth fourth month brought it again to mind, so I thought about it some more and uh, want to go into some things about it. Let's go to Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 5. Of course, we understand Isaiah is an end-time prophecy, uh, clearly talks about new heavens and new earth and so on, even in this very uh, chapter, well, 65 and 66, speaks of these things as something that are coming. So, uh, many prophecies in Isaiah clearly are of the millennium, and as we understand, they are of the church even prior to the millennium. Uh, so, this applies not way back then, but to the church today and to Israel as a whole in the millennium. So, picking it up in verse 5 of Isaiah 66, Hear the word of the Eternal, you that tremble at his word. There are very few people on earth today who truly tremble at God's Word. Uh, they refer to it, they call themselves Christian, perhaps, but they don't know much about the Word of God, and they certainly don't tremble at it. In fact, most people in the nations of Israel and the whole world have very little to do with the Bible per se. And even those who claim to have something to do with it around the world don't read much of it, and what little they read, they misunderstand. So this is referring to a people who obviously must know God's Word, must read it and understand it, and have established a certain amount of fear of God and His Word, and who tremble at what it says. In other words, it excites emotion within us to consider God's words. It builds a certain fear because God holds the keys of life and death, of eternal life or eternal death. He also is the creator of the planet and everything good and beautiful around us. So that should instill a certain amount of awe and respect and a right kind of healthy fear in us about God. So, this addresses people who tremble at the Word of God. And I think that the audience to whom I speak today, either here or out on the phone line, would be in that category. Otherwise, they would not consider going through all the various scriptures we go through 
in order to try to learn the entire Word of God as best we can and not let any of his words fall to the ground. So, he is addressing, in this end time, very, very few people here. Uh, the world talks about its elite, its 1%, but I'll guarantee you, the amount of people on the face of this earth who today tremble at his word is very, very far less than 1%. They are truly elite in that sense. doesn't make them special beyond any other human being as a child of God, but certainly special in terms of whatever relationship they're developing with God. Anyway, realize that this addresses you if you care about and tremble at and are concerned for your conduct before God. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake. So, not only is it a group of people who tremble at God's word, it is also a group of people who have been rejected by their brethren, and I'll say at this point, let's speak of the church, have been rejected by their spiritual brethren, the church. Many went evangelical and rejected those who stayed to Armstrongism, they would call it, or to the truth of God, plus what we've learned since. But those who stuck to basic truths have been rejected by those who went back to Protestantism. And even those who stuck with the basic truths that we learned in Worldwide Church of God have rejected any who have departed from some of those things and grown in the grace and knowledge of Christ and learned more since. Because many of them have not learned anything since Worldwide broke up. They're still sitting exactly where they were. Now, we are to be growing in grace and in knowledge. So, if we choose to study God's Word carefully and we learn anything that perhaps we did not know before, we will then be rejected by most of those who still cling to the basic doctrines because we are now different than them. So, those who have been rejected by their brethren get smaller and smaller the more you analyze what has happened to the church. And God says that there are very few, in fact, who will be faithful to the end and the remnant that he will gather to finish his end-time work. We've seen that to be about 10% minus some per Ezekiel 5. So, those who do choose to continue to obey God will be very, very small in number at first, and even at their largest, will only be about 10% of what was. So when it says those who still tremble at God's word, and who have also been rejected by their brethren, the count gets smaller and smaller just with those two criteria alone. Let the eternal be glorified. But he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. 
So anyone who sticks to God's Word, one who grows in God's Word and fears before it, will ultimately be glorified, and those who reject will be put to shame. An awful lot said in verse 5, and it gives us encouragement to fear God, fear His Word, to learn more about it, and be sure that we are in inside the bounds of it, and so on. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple. So we know from Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 that Jerusalem and Zion are code words for the church because it is lumped in there in Hebrews 12 as well. But even when we get into the prophecies then, the first and most foremost meaning of the prophecies when it speaks of Zion and Jerusalem, is spiritual Zion and Jerusalem, the church. It also has an application, as we know, for the physical nations of Israel, but first to the church. So, a voice from the city, a voice from the temple, means a voice from God's people, from spiritual Israel, spiritual Jerusalem and Zion. A voice of the eternal that renders recompense to his enemies. So, the voice that will come from spiritual Israel at the end will talk about a recompense to God's enemies. Part of the message they have will be that. Go to Isaiah 40 and it says, Cry aloud in the wilderness and speak comfortably to the church that their warfare is accomplished. And then it says, cry. And it says, well, what shall I cry? Down about verse 6, 7, 8. That all flesh is as grass, <laughs> that it will be burned. Part of the message is God's recompense, in other words. So, the message of the end-time church, as established beginning in Isaiah 40, uh, includes very prominently that concept as it is brought out right here in verse 6. Then it talks about her in verse 7. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. So speaking of the church, spiritual Israel today, uh, there are several different prophecies that indicate or that use this analogy of birth. Uh, Micah 4 does. Many other places do. About how we have to bring forth the man child, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we have to bring forth Christ in our lives, and that's what we're travailing to do and produce Him. Isaiah 7 talks about that, about a sign will be given, and His name will be Emmanuel, the Son that is born to the church. And of course, Matthew shows us that. Back then, they would call him Jesus or Yeshua or Joshua or whatever form you think is the correct. But later, he would be called Emmanuel by those who see God with us, which is what Emmanuel means as opposed to God is salvation, which Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus means. So, it is more specific, and it has to do with the end-time church. That's why we adopted it and use it today, uh, and have basically left the other behind, because it applies mainly at this point to physical Israel, not spiritual Israel, because Christ is coming to dwell with 
spiritual Israel, the church, as per the end of Zechariah 2. I will come and dwell with you and be with you. So God with us, Emmanuel, fits far better today. Uh, Yeshua, or however, whatever form you think is correct, might still apply more to physical Israel, but not to us. We are anticipating Christ coming and dwelling with us when Jerusalem is built as a city, or as villages without walls, there in Zechariah 2, verse 2, I think it is, or 3. Anyway, it says, before she travails, she brought forth. Now, what does that mean to you and me? Let's read on a little bit and then talk about it. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Now you and I would say, I think, since the breakup of Worldwide Church of God began, that we have been in travail to bring forth. And I think that on a spiritual level, that is certainly true. And he tells us to be in pain and be delivered there in in Micah 4 and to go out into the wilderness, away from the city, even to Babylon, still within the Babylon that is this nation, but apart from it, or away from the cities and into the wilderness. He tells us to do that there and to be in pain and bring forth. So indeed, we have been through spiritual, emotional, mental pain to some degree. So what then does this mean? To us. Now, the pain we have been through so far has been mental and emotional for the most part. Even when you apply Ezekiel 5 with the third dying of famine and pestilence, the third by the sword, and the third going into captivity with a little less than 10% left, has been with the church a spiritual experience. We have seen famine and pestilence among our brethren. We have seen the sword come to our brethren, and many have died spiritually and gone back into the world or whatever. We have seen many taken captive again by Protestantism and Babylonianism and back into the world. So God is saving back a 10% faithful that he will gather to do his end-time work. Now, I'm talking about some huge concepts here that there are scriptures to back up, but some who might be new to the broadcast or to this telephone hookup might not grasp or understand unless they go back through the minor prophets and the the sermons on Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and so on. But it's all in there, so I'm, I'm covering a lot of ground here. Understand that. So we have had this emotional or spiritual devastation of the church. But we are on the cusp today of real physical pain coming upon the nations of Israel, and more in particular, this nation of Ephraim, the United States that we live in. It is now the firstborn son, comparing uh, Jeremiah 31. He's moved the birth order. And this is the most prosperous, going all all the things I've got sermons about, about Ephraim as well, showing clearly that it 
cannot fit the United Kingdom, but has to fit the United States. And even it says that a watchman there in Jeremiah 31 will arise on Mount Ephraim and say, Come to Zion. So Zion is in Ephraim as well. And it goes on and on, and you understand that here. But now apart from the excruciating emotional pain we have gone through spiritually, we're coming down to the moment of adding to that, because our peoples will also suffer emotionally and mentally, but they will also suffer physically and die, over 90% of them. And that is drawing very, very near at this time, if you've got your ear to the ground at all. We know that they are currently putting troops all over this country. I don't think they'll be there for the next ten years just on vacation. I think there's a plan and a purpose for it. And it will come down fairly soon. So, we are right at the edge. So, even as our physical nation is about to go into great, terrible pain and suffering... So are our brethren in the church. They are on the edge of. Most of them don't even realize that they are in spiritual pain at the moment. Because they feel safe in whatever group they happen to be in. And have been told that their ticket to the place of safety is punched if they're with that particular group. So they feel most of them fairly content at this point. And they're not going through as much pain and agony, or if they've gone back into Evangelican or doing jumping jacks in church, uh, or rolling on the floor or whatever, however far it's gone, they don't realize the spiritual jeopardy and pain that they are in. They think they're just fine where they are. All the law's done away with, and we can, we can do our singy, singy evangelical thing. But they're about to be plunged into civil war and a war that destroys America. And just before that, read Jeremiah 50. It talks about the people who run from the military power of Babylon and of the Assyrian and go to Zion, saying, how do I get to Zion? They'll be running in front of it. They'll be coming out just ahead of it, perhaps in the edge of it, as some of the scriptures seem to indicate. It talks about the fall of Babylon, I think, there in, is it Isaiah 47 or 8, one of those two, and says that flee from Babylon at that point, just as it is about to be crushed. And even Revelation 18 says to come out of her, my people, just before it says Babylon will be crushed. And I had a whole series showing that America is the modern-day leader of Babylon, the system of Satan. And it will fall as the great horror of Ezekiel 16 and the great horror of Revelation 18. It isn't the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church may indeed be involved and be part of or lead the false prophets, but remember the beast and the false prophet, the economic military plus the religious side of the New World Order, or the beast power, kill the great whore. They hate her. And who is hated more in the world today than the great whore Israel? No one. We're hated by the whole world. 
where the hammer of the whole earth, as Jeremiah 51 puts it, among other things, that identify who we are. It is amazing to me that many people who understand America is about to be destroyed that are out there in the world, and some of them religious men or preachers, say that America is not even mentioned in the end-time prophecies. How can the United States not be mentioned in the end-time prophecies? I say, how could it not be mentioned? We are, today, the world-ruling empire. We're being challenged by Russia and China, by Russia the Assyrian, and by all the coalition that will come with her to destroy us. But we're the most hated, no doubt about it. So, we will be destroyed, both economically and militarily, as Revelation 18 indicates. The nation that has made the nations rich, Catholic Church hasn't, nobody else has but us. We've helped enrich Europe and other places on the earth, but we've also become the hammer of the whole earth, and they're tired of being hammered. So, that's the way it is. So, our peoples are facing a physical destruction very soon that is going to kill more than 90% of the people of this land and of Western Europe because they're Israelites as well, wherever they've gone and do South Africa and New Zealand and all this. They don't know the Bible, but they know that America is about to fall. And many of them are trying to expatriate to other countries where they think they'll be safe. It isn't going to happen. You can leave here and go where? To Gentile countries that already hate Americans. And when they see America fall, they will show that, fair, that Americans, wherever they are, are fair game. You might expatriate to Europe, but Europeans, for the most part, are Israelites as well, and the prophecies of the Bible come down on them as well. So where are you going to go? Is, to is some part of Israel that is going to be destroyed? Or will you go to the Gentiles who already hate you before you get there, and, fair, and you'll be fair game once the new world order starts? The only possible answer is in this book. For those who are faithful and tremble at God's Word, and he says he will protect them. And that amounts to many called and worldwide and few chosen thereafter to be that remnant that Haggai, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and other places talk about. So when it says, be in pain and be delivered, or here, that she'll be delivered before her pain really hits, the deliverance that I see of true church members from this world will occur just as the Assyrian army comes down from the north, as per of Jeremiah 50, first few verses. They'll look for Zion. The word of God will come out from Zion, further down in that chapter and in chapter 51. So they will be delivered just before the heavy pain and travail hits our peoples, physical Israel, both here and wherever they are in the world, but primarily here. Because the nations of northwestern Europe do not represent 
the horror in the same level that the United States does. They are not the hammer of the whole earth, though they're associated with, through NATO, America. But they will be destroyed along with her, as all nations of Israel are going to have this come down on them. Again, our worldwide view of (laughs) Germany and ten nations in Europe uh, cannot be. It was a vestige of World War I and World War II and Herbert Armstrong's thinking that the German was the Assyrian. But that was not the case. And Israel is going to be destroyed, so how can Israel be part of the beast power if she is going to be destroyed? So it can't be the nations of northwestern Europe. They're going to be destroyed because they're Israel. So the Assyrian somewhere else and his coalition of people, as shown in Psalm 83 and other places, is primarily Gentiles, not Israelites. Because they're going to be looking... They're, they're going to be at the barrel of the gun, the Israelites. The uh, Gentiles are going to be holding the gun. And doesn't it say that the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation will be the times of the Gentiles, not the times of northwestern Europe against America? That didn't make sense then, or it may have made some sense then, but it doesn't make any sense today. So when it says delivered, 10% of what was the church will be delivered to Zion and protected. But the other 90% are going into the tribulation. So those who are delivered of Zion or of Jerusalem, of the church, they will be delivered just before the pain hits. They'll run right ahead of the king of the north coming to destroy this nation. They'll come from all over the world, but they'll get in just ahead of the destruction of this nation. Just barely escape it. So just before the pain hits, they will be delivered to do the work of God, which is yet to come. Verse 9, God gives encouragement. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Eternal. Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, says the Eternal, your God. So God is promising us here that we're not going to read all these promises about how he will deliver his people and then have him say at the last minute, oh, sorry, I changed my mind. No. No. He says there in Isaiah 54 that it is as the waters of Noah to him that he deliver and bring forth his people and that they, those who have been called out ahead of time, lengthen the cords of their tent and be prepared for those who are coming just ahead of the beast power and the Assyrian coming from the north. Who's building up their military in the Arctic today? Primarily Russia. And they will attack down through uh, Canada and into here, as well as up from Mexico with uh, some of their compatriots, uh, Ishmaelites and others who are coming in from the south. So we are being set up for this destruction, which will come upon us very, very soon now. It isn't just talk now. Uh, People are sending in pictures from all over the nation of war materiel and uh, helicopters and planes and trucks and so on having to do with war. 
So it is coming very, very close. So this deliverance has to be pretty soon. Just ahead of it. How far away is it? Three months? I don't know. It looks like less than 12 at this point. Uh, it could happen this fall. Many people are saying the financial collapse will occur this fall. That might be a bit premature, and it may not. I don't know, but I know it's getting very close by watching everything I'm watching. So it isn't far away. I'm not going to try to set any dates and say it's going to be September or October. It might be February or March. I don't know. But I know it's close because all the signs are there. So this deliverance and this gathering of people is not very far away either. Now, we came out ahead of time to prepare a place, and we prepared a small place. We may need a larger place, and God may have to provide that. And place is, since it will be built as villages without walls, uh, so several different places people will be placed. We'll see how that works out. But anyway, God says he's going to deliver just before the pain hits, and he must be talking about this pain of the Assyrian coming in, because up to now it's been pretty much emotional and mental pain, but then it's suddenly going to have to that pain added the physical pain and death for 90% of the church through martyrdom. Some of those will repent and be delivered. Zechariah about 12 talks about that, 12 or 13. And about a third will repent during the tribulation and turn to God, but that's what it's going to take to get them to do it. So he's going to deliver a remnant ahead of time, and Christ will come and dwell with them as per Zechariah 2 during the time of the two witnesses. So let's go on down to ten, verse 10, and this is the one that had come to my mind that I wanted to go back and review. It says, Rejoice you with Jerusalem. And be glad with her, because she is about to be delivered. The spiritual Jerusalem in Israel is about to be delivered before the beast. All you that love her, rejoice for joy with her, all you that mourn for her, that you may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. So he reckons his deliverance of the true spiritual Israelites to a woman giving birth, and then that that woman, I mean that those children that are born of that woman, will be nourished by her, using a nursing mother as part of the analogy. Interestingly, as we get more into this subject and in the history of Jerusalem, we'll find that even geologically speaking, Mother Jerusalem has breasts, geological ones, but they're symbolic. More on that later, but not now. For thus says the Eternal, verse 12, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall you suck you, you, uh, upon her sides and be dandled upon her knees." As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So, in the church, the mother of us all, as Paul put it, but I think also within physical Jerusalem, because scriptures indicate it has to be built as well, and we'll get to that later on. This is 
uh, a prelude to all those scriptures. Or this is kind of at the end of Isaiah and is reiterating what all those other prophecies have talked about that we have read in the past. And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like an herb and the hand of the Eternal shall be known toward His servants and His indignation toward His enemies. For behold, the Eternal will come with fire and with His chariots like a whirlwind to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by His sword will the Eternal plead with all flesh and the slain of the Eternal shall be many. Now notice the context here. He's talking about this deliverance and Jerusalem being dandled, or, or the people being dandled by Mother Jerusalem. And just in the context of God beginning to take vengeance upon the sinners of the world. Now that doesn't happen once the millennium starts. So he's not first and foremost here referring to the millennium, because all this tragedy will occur before the millennium ever starts. But here he's talking about Jerusalem being delivered ahead of his anger and violence that comes down on the world. So you see, this is talking about some kind of deliverance to spiritual Israel ahead of the deliverance of physical Israel that will occur in the millennium after all the warfare and anger has occurred. This is ahead of that. Because it mentions it and then talks about how God is about to unleash it all when He delivers spiritual Israel the church. And the anguish and pain and killing comes on the rest of physical Israel and 90% of the church. Now, we have just fasted. I want to go back to Zechariah 8 for a moment. We just fasted on the fast of the fourth month. And Zechariah is an end-time prophecy and indicates that we should be doing this. It's not an ancient prophecy that was of the Jews and gone, but it's in Zechariah, which is in no uncertain terms an end-time book. He tells us in verse 16 of 8, These are the things you shall do. Speak every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And <laughs> don't imagine evil. And love no false oath and so on. And it says in verse 19, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh and the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feasts, Therefore, love the truth and peace. So currently, we are fasting on these days because of what they represent. And as per Isaiah 66, which we just read, God is about to turn the mental anguish that the church has been going through into a joyous time. He's going to turn things around and bless us. Go back and read Isaiah 54, and it shows, in 55, it shows the blessings that will be. Isaiah 51 talks about how we'll be given conditions such as the Garden of Eden, if we remember Abraham and Sarah, our forebears, 
and do what they did. There are many, many scriptures I could cite here to show this turnaround. And he says, even these fasts will be turned around. Well, what do the fasts mean? The one in the tenth month of January represents the siege that came on Jerusalem. The fast of the fourth month represents the destruction of Jerusalem. That was yesterday. The third represents the sacking of the temple. That's next month. And then the one of the seventh month, the killing of the one who had been appointed to be the leader in Israel at that time, Gedaliah. But as I read to you last week in the announcements, the Jews have identified at least four things that they say happened on the fast the same day is the fast of the fourth month. The most prominent, of course, was the fall of Jerusalem. But let's review that for a moment here. Not less than four incidents are connected with the fast of the fourth month. A, on this day, the Israelites made the golden calf. Well, that was a rejection of God, is what that was. We want to worship this calf, not God, okay? So, on the day yesterday that represented the fall of Jerusalem... Why did the fall of Jerusalem come? Because of the rejection of God. So, indeed, if that, the golden calf occurred on yesterday, that same date long ago, the rejection of God was complete while Moses was on the mountain. That's why Jerusalem fell, or that's why Israel fell at that time, and several times since, for rejecting God. Uh, Moses broke the tables of the law. That also, I think, could be tied to this and to, to today very clearly. Our nation and all Israel, all the nations of Israel, have rejected the law of God. And now we've made that virtually complete with accepting every kind of perversion and have become Sodom and Gomorrah just in this last month. Officially, we were already headed there, but we made it official. So the law of God has been rejected. And even churchianity in this nation of ours that we call Christian, or used to, almost invariably, they say the law is done away. So even before our government began denouncing all the laws of God, the churches themselves denounced all the laws of God. That's why our nation's being destroyed, is it not? Because of rejecting God and His law? Maybe those dates did occur on the same day. God can work those things out as the destruction of Jerusalem came by Nebuchadnezzar in the past. The daily sacrifice ceased for one of cattle when the city was closely besieged prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. God's people, those who were called, over 90% of them, are going to be killed within the next, oh, let's just say five to ten years. And that's probably way on the outside. They're going to be killed. Their prayers cut off just like the animal sacrifices were cut off. And on this day, uh, Jerusalem was stormed by Nebuchadnezzar and taken captive, which is the main thing that we notice. But all these other things 
were what caused Jerusalem to fall and has always caused Israel to fall and is what is causing Israel to fall today. We've rejected the eternal creator God. We've rejected his laws. We've gone into paganism of every kind and now perversion of every kind. And God is about to drop the hammer on us. And we deserve it greatly. He says, if we will serve him and tremble at his word and pray and obey, that maybe he will see fit to deliver us. He won't. 90% of the church and over 90% of the nation. But a small percentage of the church and the nation, he will deliver. So it's, it's a sad thing that is just ahead of us, just down the road. Now, in connection with what I've just read, uh, we know Haggai and Zechariah and the story there of the two witnesses, those two sons of oil from Zechariah 4.14 combined with Revelation 11, who will be preaching to all seven of the churches in the end time, and that during the time that they lead up to, or before, the tribulation begins, the 1260, uh, they will be feeding all seven churches the golden oil of God. That's Zechariah 4. So, in the time that they come on the scene to the church, and the gathering occurs just ahead of the destruction of the nation, that remnant will come together, and it says we'll build a temple. That's the story of Haggai, and it isn't an ancient temple. Haggai concludes with God destroying the nations and shaking the earth. So, it's an end-time prophecy for today, and it has to do with Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two witnesses, of Revelation 11 and Haggai and Zechariah and other places in Isaiah and other scriptures. So, those are prophecies for now and the remnant being delivered as we read in Isaiah 66. Uh, you can talk Zephaniah 2, where it says that we are to gather before the decree of financial destruction of Zephaniah 1 hits. Uh, Israel is going to have its economy completely destroyed. I'm not talking about that little nation of Edomites in the Middle East. I'm talking about this one and the rest of Israel along with it. Uh, and on and on it goes. Isaiah 6, 11 through 13 says that a tithe or 10% remnant will come to Zion and to Jerusalem to be delivered. So we know that's coming. Now, I have considered our nation... Quite a little, I'm thinking about it, over the last year or two. And I'm very aware that in Revelation 11, God tells even the two witnesses that they are to measure the temple and the altar and them that worship therein, but they are to leave out the court of the Gentiles. They are not to go to the world, but they are to have their focus and attention on the church. And that, of course, is what Zechariah 4 shows, is that they will be feeding all seven of the churches, because from internal evidence in Revelation 2 and 3, all seven of those attitudes and approaches uh, exist at the end. So they'll be feeding them all. But he tells them to leave out the Gentiles. Now, if it's the church, as Zechariah 4 shows, that they are to be addressing... And really then, not even until God gathers them together so that they can be fed. 
They are to remain essentially silent and not go to the world as many groups and splinters of worldwide are trying to do. Herbert Armstrong was trying to preach the gospel around the world as a witness so that the end could come, but it never happened. And those who have followed in his steps, as they say, are trying to do that, and it isn't happening. It will be done by the two witnesses once the 1260 starts. They will be the ones who preach the gospel to the world as a witness, and then the end will come three and a half days after they're killed in the streets of Jerusalem. So that is what that is talking about. But I see our country today about to go into captivity. I see most of the people don't even have a clue of what's going on and that we're about to be destroyed. And the ones that do are in confusion and frustration and trying to prepare for a collapse and a civil war, and they recommend anything from three days to three months or three years of food and water and ammo and all those things. But they think there's going to be a financial collapse and that there'll be a time of trouble and then America will rebound and rebuild and we'll have a true republic and democratic government because Americans will do this. And they do not understand that this judgment, some say it's a judgment of God on our nation, but they don't understand what's going to happen or what comes after. So they're in mass confusion. One of the ones that I read fairly frequently for the news says, I don't understand why America is not mentioned in prophecy, because he's also somewhat religious. And I, I had a f- desire to email him or call him up and say, hey, let me explain what's going on, who America is in prophecy. I had that emotion, just as Jeremiah tells us there in 50 or 51, whichever it is, if we could save Israel, we would. We love her, we love our country. If there was any way we could save it, we would. But he says the Assyrian is coming and we can't save it. So I have feelings and I hurt for our fellow Americans. But there's no way they know what's coming, and the ones who do see something coming don't know quite how to interpret it. So my heart and my emotions are to try to explain. And I know some of those, at least one of those people, uh, visited with him two or three times, who posts a lot of these articles about what is coming, And I thought, maybe I ought to sit down and explain to him what I know. Or call two or three of the different ones who are ringing the bells the loudest. Or doing the watchman cry, as they might call it. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized, if I bring up British Israelism, if I bring up where Jerusalem and Zion and the Promised Land are, And some of these various things we understand, they would laugh it to scorn. I could never get to first first base, I'd never get out of the batter's box. I'd strike out right there, three swings. Probably one swing, and I'd go down. They are not primed to hear. Even as the church itself is not primed to hear. 
we sent the Passover paper, which I think was very, very clearly written and used every scripture that could possibly pertain to it, out to every address we could find within the churches of God and individual people, and it was rejected by 99.9999% of them. So the church is not at this point prepared to listen. The world, Israel is a physical nation, or nations, is not primed to hear. And that is why, I believe God said, even those that I appoint to eventually warn the world are to keep still until the time is right. Because they will not listen. Now, Herbert Armstrong, and to a small part, Ted, gave a little warning to this nation back in the 50s and 60s. And there were old people around who heard them, and they paid no attention then, most of them. They have their own watchman cry. Self-proclaimed watchman of the Protestant version who are telling as loudly as they can on coast-to-coast radio and on television where they can get there, even Glenn Beck and various ones are shouting aloud that we're in trouble. Even now a presidential candidate is really socking it to the establishment and calling them to some degree what they are. I don't know whether he'll get any wilder or not with it, but it's not being accepted very well because they don't want anybody to rock the boat. But he knows there is great trouble in this nation. doesn't understand why, of course, but he knows there's trouble. So they have their own watchmen of Israel, Israelites by birth of this nation, who are trying to warn them. But God tells his people at this particular juncture in time to keep quiet. And when the gathering comes then he will send leadership with them to teach them the truth, to build the temple, and to build Jerusalem, and that it will then have the abomination of desolation set up in it, and that is the day that the two witnesses start preaching to the world the last three and a half years, and the church goes to safety on that day as well, to Zion, as all the scriptures talk about it, as a place of refuge. So that's a very broad, quick explanation. But where I'm headed to with this, what is going to be a series of sermons, I'm sure, I thought I would just cover the history of Jerusalem today based on a little bit about what I was thinking yesterday during the fast about the destruction of Jerusalem. And as I got into it more and more this morning, I realized Jerusalem, that's bigger than an hour. (laughs) That is a huge subject. If you start going into the history of it and all the ups and downs and the destructions of it and how it began, uh, where it is today, and what is about to happen to it, it's a huge subject. So today is merely an introduction based on Isaiah 66 about how God is about to bring out and protect his people so that there's hope ahead. But I'm going to go into the earliest recognition of anything that could pertain to Jerusalem in the Bible and try to follow the history of 
Jerusalem from the very beginning up until today and into the future. So this is going to require quite a little time, and many of the the statements I made today with very little backup about the overall flow of what's going on today and what's happening to the church and to our nation uh, can be substantiated by many scriptures. Uh, But I want to begin in the beginning and bring it forward because we need to know what is happening to Jerusalem physically, to Jerusalem spiritually, the church, what is going to occur is more important in many respects to us than what has occurred. But unless you start looking at what has occurred in the past, you cannot recognize what, where, who, well, why, what, where, when, and how about Jerusalem until you understand its history. Even the where, as I just said. You may not know until you understand its history. So it's a huge subject, and this is merely an introduction showing that things are about to turn good for those who tremble at God's Word, for those who seek Him and serve Him. He is going to bless them just ahead of the destruction of this country. So that is a very, very encouraging scripture to bring to mind those who love Jerusalem. Did I read that one? says, those who love Jerusalem, let her come to mind. So Jerusalem is very much on my mind, because I do love her. I love the church, and I love our people, and I love what I now understand of even physical Jerusalem. So it's come to mind, and I think we ought to consider it, and a a lot of the ramifications of it. So let's look at the past, and then we can better understand the future as we get to that.